resuming our study through Genesis and the life of Abraham. And this is the last time God is going to express the promise of the son that will be born until Isaac is actually born. So we've been running through this together called the progress of the promise. We've seen this several times. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham had that initial call to leave Ur and go to the promised land. Genesis 13, he separated from Lot and God reaffirmed that he would give him the land. Genesis 15, that's when Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness that he would have a son. End of chapter 15 is when God formally established the Abrahamic covenant. That's when the animals were cut in half and the smoke and the fire went through the through the offering, forming the covenant there. Genesis 17 was the sign of circumcision where God said, no, not Ishmael, you are going to have a son named Isaac. And then in chapter 18 here, Abraham and Sarah are going to have a personal visitation from God himself. And he is going to verbally tell them one more time, you are going to have a son. And that will happen in chapter 21, but this is the last time that God is going to express that. This chapter is also the beginning of what you might call the Sodom sequence, starting in chapter 18 to the end of chapter 19, and perhaps, depending on how you interpret it, trickling over into chapter 20, that's the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and there's several pieces to that. So this is connected to what came before, but it also leads right into what happens next, but we're not going to get so much to that tonight, but it is good to know that that's where we are structurally. But as I said, in this story, Abraham and Sarah will be visited by the Lord himself. They're going to host God for a meal in their home. How you like that? That's why you buy China when you get married, by the way, because you never know who's going to show up. I always wondered about that. You know, we got to register for China. I'm like, why? Who's coming by? Well, you never know who's coming by. Hebrews 13 verse 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I've talked to some people who are firmly convinced, and I have no biblical ground to doubt them, that they have met and interacted with and talked to angels before. It's really funny because it seems like I've met more unbelievers that are firm in their belief in angels than some Christians, but that's very true and very biblical. And there's a number of lessons that we can draw from this passage, and we'll touch on those, but the main thing we're going to look at tonight is how we can know and how we ought to act when God visits us. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. God also dwells in you. If you are in Christ, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The dwelling place of God is with man. He's not in the temple made with hands. But although all that is true, there are points in our lives where God specially reveals himself to you. You've had moments in your life, of course, God was always there. You never doubted it. But there's maybe a day or a sequence of days where you can say God was speaking clearly. Normally he whispers, but that day he had a megaphone up to my ear. He was speaking to me. I encountered him. Maybe we've even got some things that he did and showed you that you'd be embarrassed to share with us because nobody else would take it seriously. But God was speaking to you. This is the coolest part of being a Christian. Well, one of the coolest, I guess. We live in constant anticipation that God can at any moment break into our mundane everyday lives and do something special. They're not going to be doing anything particularly spiritual in this story, but it's going to become one of the most spiritual experiences of their lives. God can act anytime he wants. You can be going through something and struggling with something and trying to deal with it, and then all of a sudden God shows up in one moment and boom, 
It's all taken care of. And now, how we prepare for moments like that is very important. How we recognize them when they come, and then how we act in them, that can determine your whole life. Those special moments. You know, we've got a lot of boring days in the middle, but we all have pivot points in our lives. And we've got to make sure that when that moment comes, we don't let it pass us by. Do you remember the blind man in Mark chapter 10 who heard the crowd going by and he said, who is that? And they said, oh, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And he knew that Jesus was a healer. And it said he stood up and began to holler and cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He didn't know where Jesus was. He was just screaming, trying to get his attention. Everybody else was like, would you shut up? This is obnoxious. This is unseemly. This is supposed to be a religious procession and you're ruining it. And it said he just cried out all the more until Jesus said, hey, bring that guy to me. And he said, what do you want? He said, I want you to restore my sight. He was not about to let Jesus pass him by without getting God's attention. He says, if God is coming close to me, I'm going to reach out and touch him. In the same way, we've got to be able to recognize when God is passing close and respond accordingly. And stories like this, they show us how to do that. And I like this story because it really shows us what God saw in Abraham. When God picked Abraham, like we saw at the very beginning, we're like, why this guy? What, what is his deal? He can't, he can't get it right. But when you see stories like this, you can see how he's grown, how he's matured, and that God saw that was in him, and God spent a lifetime drawing that man that he could have been out of him. And it gives me hope for myself. So let's begin. Let's, let's look at Abraham's example here, starting by reading the first eight verses of this chapter. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. All right. Now we know from chapter 18, verse 10 and verse 14, which we didn't read, but we're going to get to them, that this event took place very shortly after Abraham's last encounter with God. Because when Abraham encountered God the last time and was given the sign of circumcision, the Lord told him, about this time next year, your wife will conceive and bear a son. And in this chapter, twice, he's going to say those same words, about this time next year. Which tells us it was not very long from the last time that we saw God speak to Abraham. And we know from the rest of this chapter that God was on his way to Sodom, the city of Sodom to inspect and to judge it. But along the way, he stops to see Abraham. And when we get to chapter 19, we're going to see the difference between how Abraham treated a heavenly visitation and how the Sodomites treated a heavenly visitation. And that contrast is, of course, very stark. You know the story. Now, this was unexpected. When God visits us, it's not always expected. It's not always, well, we've scheduled a revival and God's going to show up. 
It's not always like, okay, we've planned everything. The songs are just right. It's the perfect sermon and everybody's here. God has to move tonight. Hey, I've had plenty of those services where we had a great meeting, but nothing particularly earth-shattering happened. This was unexpected. But Abraham handled himself exactly as he should. So I'm going to draw out four things tonight, four things that Abraham did that can apply to us when the Lord wants to speak to us, when God is going to have one of those visitations with you, when the Lord is passing by, like in Mark chapter 10. There's four things that we ought to do that we see in the life of Abraham. First of all, Abraham was ready for a visitation from the Lord. Before this day came, Abraham had prepared himself for such a visitation. You don't see him sputtering and wondering what to do. You know, <laughs> he's not freaking out. He's not saying, oh, it's really not a good time. I don't know what to do. How does one act when strangers come and when one of them is the Lord? He could not have known when this day was coming, but he knew how he ought to act in that situation. He had thought about it ahead of time. Now, we've seen throughout the book of Genesis how Abraham's relationship with God has grown, how his familiarity with the presence of God had grown from that initial call in the land of the Chaldeans to the amazing visions he had where he was put into a deep sleep and had a vision of God's presence and all of that. It all laid the foundation for a moment like this. And the book of Genesis only really gives us the highlights of Abraham's life. That's to be expected, right? We know, though, that in between those big mountaintop moments, Abraham was building altars and calling upon the name of the Lord. Remember we draw that out at the beginning of his life? We were saying Abraham didn't build cities. He pitched tents and he built altars. Abraham was always, it would say, calling upon the name of the Lord. He would move and he would come to a place and it said, and Abraham built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord there. And we can assume that that continued to happen. This was a regular thing in Abraham's life, that that regular worship prepared him for a visitation like this. I love mountaintop moments with God. I've got stories I could tell you where it's like Book of Acts time, where I was leading groups at a, at a summer camp one time, and it was people prophesying and speaking in tongues right out of the Bible. I've had moments where God has laid me out and spoken things to me that then came to pass, and I've seen people's lives radically change in an instant. Those are cool, and we want more of them. We love worship services where you can barely breathe because God is, is so, you're so aware of who God is in those moments. We want more of them. We pray for them. We pray for revival. We read the stories of revival and say, Lord, I want some of that. Come on. But we've got to be made ready for those moments. We can't just wait and wait and wait. Okay, now it's here. Now it's time. You've got to be readied for that. Consider the church in the book of Acts. We talked about this a lot lately. We see the highlights when Peter was busted out of jail by an angel. When Paul struck that guy with blindness that was countermanding his gospel. The miracles, the persecutions. But as we said then, there were countless normal days that prepared the church for those things. The book of Acts covers 30 years. So we don't have everything that happened we don't have all the regular services where nothing miraculous took place. We don't have all the days where Paul was stretching the leather and sewing up the tents and he pricks his finger and now it's bleeding and he's got to cut it up. We don't read about all that. But those days were there and we can't forget that they were there. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, this is Luke's first summary 
of how the church behaved. He says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See that phrase a couple times, day by day. This is what they did in the meantime. We read about the cool stories, but in the meantime, Peter and John raised up the lame man at the gate, beautiful, when they were going to pray at the temple, which they did every day until God had built the faith for them to do that. Every time in the Bible you read a word like, oh, this is this man, he was full of the Holy Spirit, or he was a faithful man, or he was mighty in the scriptures. Those are descriptions that reveal a life of discipline that had led up to those moments, and that now they were ready to be used. You cannot skip that part. <laughs> you want to hear from the Lord and have great moments with God? You can't skip the in-between times. You ever met somebody that thinks they're going to be a great athlete or a great musician because they dress just like their favorite athlete or musician or they've bought all of the equipment and you know you meet people like this at the gym where they don't work out they just kind of wander around a little bit and they give advice to everybody else and you know you you, you really shouldn't be doing that and what are you eating and they want to ask you questions about your diet and stuff like that they never really do anything they're just kind of there and it's a well you might have the best plan, but if you don't do anything, me getting here and saying, okay, I know how to bench press, I'll do that. And I know that running is good for you, I'll do that. Well, one of those people is actually going to improve and get better. You wear a red shirt and black slacks, that doesn't mean you can golf like Tiger Woods. You've got to practice, believe it or not. You've got to get out there and, and swing and don't say, oh, I'm going to watch how he does it and then go out and do that. Well, no, you've got to get out there and actually try it and see if that works for you. You ever watch those American Idol or those audition music shows where people come in and they're dressed like that superstar, they even kind of look like them, and they've practiced their mannerisms, and then they try to sing, and you can tell they're trying to sing like them, and they say, no, you can't sing. Like, well, but I did the thing. Whitney Houston does that, don't you know? So it's like, yeah, but you can't sing like that because you haven't done the work leading up to that. You thought you could do the obvious things and not do any of the practice and the boring stuff. We can be like that in church where we're so excited about the big moments, but we're just not interested in showing up for regular church. We're not interested in reading our Bible day by day. We don't pray. We don't fast. We don't tithe. So that's okay. When revival comes, oh Lord, send revival. It's like, well, what's going to happen to you when revival comes? This is, you're still going to be an infant. You're still going to have to learn all that stuff again. There are people that have lived and never seen revival go through their lives, yet they are as godly and as righteous and as mighty in the word as somebody that had been through 10 revivals. You've got to prepare yourself ahead of time. You've got to study your Bible. Read it. Read the thing, you know. Pray regularly. Fast like you should. Share the gospel with people. Go to church tithe generously. All these things, these spiritual disciplines that make you ready for the big moments. You can't just say, well, when God shows up, I'll be there. 
It's like, well, God is always there. You should act in anticipation of his presence. Abraham was ready for the Lord to come because he had had a lifetime of faithfulness. So that's the first thing. You got to be ready. You want God to speak to you, want to be able to take full advantage of that visitation, you got to be ready. Number two, Abraham recognized the presence of the Lord. He recognized a visitation from God. He knew that God had come to him, even though it was not obvious to the naked eye. Three people show up, and Abraham runs out and bows down before this man and calls him Lord, Adonai. And now it is possible that he didn't know who this was and he was just being respectful, but I don't think so. He's talking about, if I found favor in your sight. That, that's the word for grace. He says, you came to see me. I'm your servant. Now, Abraham was, remember, he was the wealthy sheik of Mamre, right? You know, he, he was somebody. He goes down and he bows before this person. He recognized that this was the Lord. Now, I find this passage fascinating for another reason, because... While it's not explicit, as some people are very fond of pointing out, there are some very serious Trinitarian overtones in this passage. If you believe in the Trinity, there are some things that immediately light up to you when you read this. God came to Abraham in the form of three people. That's pretty significant. Now we know the next chapter is going to tell us that these two men were angels. So he's not explicitly, this is God the Father, this is God the Son, this is God the Holy Spirit. But I still think that's pretty interesting. It's, it's at least enough to make you raise your eyebrows, right? And we already believe in the Trinity for other reasons. This just, say, if we believe in the Trinity, and we do, you read this passage and you go, well, that just makes sense, doesn't it? You can see how the pronouns here, he calls him you, it calls him them, he's just switching back and forth. And I think it only makes sense because God the Father never became a man. The Holy Spirit never became a man. Jesus did. So it makes sense that while Jesus Christ was the pre-incarnate Christ, you could say, was the Lord here, he had the two attendants that still gave the, the image of three people. So I think this is pretty cool. And you can't use this passage alone to confirm the Trinity, but it's exactly what we should expect. God came to Abraham and three men were standing there. The Old Testament has complex monotheism. We've talked about that. Not simple like Islam or anything like that. It opened the door for what the New Testament would reveal. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. And God the Holy Spirit is God. And these three are one. But Abraham was familiar with who God was. He was able to recognize a visitation from the Lord. Jesus would say in John 8:56 that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they said, when, when, when did you see Abraham? You're not, you're not even 50 years old. He says, before Abraham was, I am. This is when Abraham saw the Lord. Abraham was familiar. He knew it was God. He was able to recognize God's presence. Are you able to recognize God's presence? Are you like Bartimaeus? You're able to recognize this is Jesus coming by? Because there are a lot of things that can serve as a replacement for God's presence that are not legitimate, and you've got to be able to tell the difference. You've got to be able to know when it's God and when it's not. Sometimes what we think is God speaking to us is just wishful thinking, you know? You want something to be true so bad that you're looking for any little indication that God is speaking to you. Lord, if you want me to marry that girl, have that red light turn green. <gasps> it turned green. It's God speaking to me. Okay, well, that light was probably going to turn green anyway. 
doesn't mean that God's not in it, but you got to be careful to attach God to something you really want. And listen, sometimes we want things, and, and there's nothing wrong with wanting them. So I really would like to do this. Well, it's not a sin, so okay, go ahead, you know? But you've got to make sure you don't say, well, I just want it so badly that God must be in it. I wouldn't want it this bad if God was not wanting me to have it. Be careful, that's dangerous. Sometimes it's just emotion. Now, when you're in the presence of God, it is usually a very emotional thing. That only makes sense. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Daniel passed out a couple times. Zechariah was struck dumb, although that was because he couldn't keep his mouth shut. But it's an emotional thing to be in God's presence. When we worship, when we sing, when we pray, the tears will flow. The smiles will come. It's, it's an emotional thing. That's okay. But you can't just say, well, because I'm emotional, it must be God. That's not true either. Don't just say, well, I'm so excited. I know whatever I want when I'm excited, that must be that God is speaking to me. Oh, I'm just so distraught. I'm so broken down. It must be God. Maybe not. The devil's like, all I got to do is get you excited and you'll do whatever I want. Fine, I'll keep you excited. I'll keep you broken down. Sometimes it's manipulation. Sometimes there's a person in your life who is convincing you against your better judgment. And you think, well, that just makes so much sense. It must be God. You got to be careful with that. Because there are people, some of them are on TV, and they're trying to twist your arm and twist your wallet and get your money. And sometimes there's just people in life that they want to keep you under control. I don't really get that because that's not really my personality. But there are people that just like to have their little ring of people that are under their sway. And so they'll twist and they'll turn and they'll poke and they'll prod and they understand people very well and they use it to, to a bad purpose. And you think, well, it must be God because my dad said it. Or it must be God because my wife said it. Or it must be God because he would never lead me astray. You don't know that. Can it be? Yes. But you don't know for certain because Number four, sometimes it can be Satan. The devil can deceive you. Well, I know what it's like to hear God speak. Okay, yeah, but God would never say that. Oh, I've heard that one a thousand times. Well, the Lord says it's okay for me to engage in this sin. God wouldn't say that. Well, I know God's voice. Uh, apparently you don't, because God's already spoken on that one. He's already given us the answer on that one. And my God wouldn't say that. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 14 and 15 says, Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Muhammad saw an angel. They gave him a new revelation. Joseph Smith saw an angel. New revelation. Lots of religions have great manifestations of these heavenly beings. But you know what Paul said? Even if an angel gives you a new gospel, he can go to hell too. Anathema, he says, is the Greek word there. Let him be accursed, condemned. Like, you can't say that about angels. He's like, I can if they're contradicting the gospel. You can't always trust those things. You know, there is a, a, we don't really talk like this, but there are certain kinds of churches that they love to talk about the presence of God. And there are a lot of songs a few years ago that were written about the presence. And listen, I love the presence of God. That's a good thing. But you never want to confuse the mood of a room with the presence of God or the atmosphere of a room. Can those things be connected? Oh, you bet. When God shows up, it, it will change the mood. But what people will do is, we'll change the mood, and then God has to come. No, it doesn't go the other way. God will change the mood and change the atmosphere, but you don't get to say, well, if we do this, then God will show up. That's, that's like summoning. We don't do that. 
God appeared to Abraham in various ways. Sometimes, remember, Abraham was under thick darkness and he fell into a deep sleep. Sometimes he was just staring out and God said, look at the stars. Today, it's people showing up and talking to him. God came to Abraham in various ways at different times. So you can't always say that because this thing happened, it must be God, because God doesn't always do things the same way. Remember when Elijah was on the mountain and there was a giant earthquake and then there was a wind that smashed the rocks into pieces and a fire passed over the mountain, but it said God was in none of those things. Now, had God been in earthquakes before? Yes, he had. Had God been in wind before? He certainly had. And fire too. But it said God was in none of those things that time. But God was in the whisper, the still small voice. You need that godly discernment to know when something is just flash and no substance and when God is really there. Because God can show up riding on the clouds of heaven like Ezekiel saw, the wheels within wheels and the six-winged angels, or just a whisper. You've got to be able to recognize God himself, not the things surrounding that. How do you do that? Well, it starts by knowing God from the scripture. What is God like? What is it like when people come into God's presence? What did God say? That way you know when the Lord shows up, I've come to speak to you. The New Testament is not inspired. Okay, well, that's a demon. That's not God. Looking back at times in your life where you can say for sure God was speaking to you, what was that like? You know, remember what it was like in the presence of God that one time. And then you can compare that to your current experience. You need to be careful about that, but all these things work together. Familiarize yourself with what it's like when you are in prayer, when you're in worship, when you're in the Word, and you're in God's congregation, and the Lord is speaking to us. What is that like? Know what that's like. Because sometimes, if you've ever, ever seen this, where you know what it's like to be in, in, a, in a church service and around God's people, and you go somewhere where it just doesn't feel right. Maybe all, all the words seem right. Maybe they're, they're all looking the same, dressing the same, but you're like, something's not up, not right here. Or someone stops you on the street, wants to talk about Jesus, and you're like, what is it about this? This doesn't feel right. And it's like, well, we believe that God is a woman. Ah, there we go. So <laughs> that happened to me. That exact story <laughs> happened to me. Consulting godly people. Find someone who just knows God. And say, hey, how do you know when it's God and when it's not? And a lot of this just comes through experience, you know? You've got to have experience with the Lord and always standing firm on what you know to be true, which is the scripture, right? And ultimately, you can know something by its fruit. I don't know if God's working through that church or not, or that movement or not, or this thing or not. You know what? Wait a little while and see what kind of fruit comes out of that. This pastor is sweeping the globe. This is either revival or a very bad thing, and I don't know which. Well, you just wait and see. The Lord will reveal it to you, and God's not going to hold you in condemnation for being patient. The Bereans went home and tested everything Paul said according to the scriptures, remember? And Paul said they were noble for that. You will know every tree by its fruit. So be patient, and be hesitant to attach God's name to something unless you know for sure. We've got to be able to recognize God's presence. Now, we believe in a personal relationship with Christ. We believe that you can know and that God does show up. But are you cultivating a relationship so that when your friend walks in the room, you know that he's there? You ever grow up in a house and my house is this way? You knew who was coming by the sound on the stairs? You're like, oh, that's dad. 
Oh, that's Megan. She's coming. Oh, that's my mom. She, oh, who is that? I don't know who that is. You know, it's like that. You just be able to recognize that God is here. Are you cultivating that relationship so that you can recognize him like Abraham did? Let's keep going. Number three, Abraham was receptive to a visitation from the Lord. This is an interesting one. Abraham did not flee. He didn't say, we're closed. You'll have to come back later. (laughs) He didn't disregard it, but he welcomed the Lord and he deferred to him in all things. Look how quickly he moved to prepare a meal for these men. Remember, this is the the high grand sheik Abraham. He's a wealthy, rich, powerful man. But he goes out and he prepares the meat and the bread and the milk, inviting them to sit in the shade of the tree. Remember the terebinth trees. These were these huge oaks, these giant trees in the heat of the day. Hey, come sit under these trees. It's much more shady under here. And he stood waiting on them. Do you see that? They sat to eat and he stood. He stood waiting on them. Abraham could very easily have served himself here. He said, oh, it's hot today. Don't they know what time? It's, a, it's hot right now. No, I mean, if you, you come back later, because if I get up and I go out and I've got to get the calf and I've got to run and tell Sarah and I've got to make sure that their water is all filled up and, and I'm going to get exhausted. He could have been selfish. <laughs> but instead, he said, I'm going to serve my guests because they're in the heat of the day too. So I'm going to care for their needs and not worry about myself so much. I'm going to say a word about hospitality in general here. Christians are to be welcoming, hospitable people. We're supposed to be kind. We're supposed to have open doors and open hands to other people, but especially to each other. 1 Peter 4.10 says, show hospitality to one another. You go, amen. But then he adds this last phrase, without grumbling. Okay, this verse just got a lot more difficult to follow. Oh, yeah, you know, you're in my house. It's so great to have you. you go in the kitchen. When are they going to go home? This is driving me crazy. They're eating all my food. Don't, this is so rude that they came. No, 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 without grumbling. It's too easy. We kind of view our house as like our bedroom now. It seems like these days, like our house is like our bedroom. Like, don't come in here. What are you doing? This is kind of weird that you came to my house. Why would you want to come over here? Let's go out somewhere. No one can come in. We're very hesitant to open up. Hey, that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. Have you ever known a truly hospitable person? I'm not talking about somebody that lets you into their house and everything, but like somebody that that was their favorite thing to do was to open their house and prepare a meal and have you into their house. And they made you feel special and they, you never felt like they were rushing you out the door. My Aunt Rita is like that, my great Aunt Rita. She's from Germany, and I don't know if she carried over some of that European culture or whatever, but you go over to her house and... She makes you feel like you're the guest of honor. You're just there to watch football. You're just there to hang out. You know, I was in the neighborhood and came by, but she's got, oh, why don't you sit down? Let me take your coat. Here's some food I just made for you. I'll make sure that everything is ready. It's just, it's wonderful. And you feel so great. You never feel like you're imposing and you never feel like you've put her out. And there are some people that they're letting you into their house, but you can tell they'd they'd rather that you went home. (laughs) But Christians are supposed to be that way. We've got to reclaim that virtue. That's something that we ought to have for one another. That we're welcoming people. That we're open. We also need to know not to take advantage of one another's hospitality. But that's another lesson for another day. It all comes down to selfishness. Whether you're receiving the presence of a person on earth or the presence of the Lord. If you're selfish, you don't want anyone coming in and messing with your stuff. God or man. Abraham had been profoundly inconvenienced by God before. 
God made him move. God made him get rid of half of his land. God told him he couldn't live in Egypt. Abraham had been very inconvenienced by this God. And he could have been saying, Lord, every time you show up, every time there's some giant change and you tell me something I'm doing wrong and you know what? No, we're closed. You can come by another time. But he didn't do that. He ushered God into his own tent. And this is important to remember, that when we have a visitation from the Lord, it's not always to drop a bag of gold at our feet, as nice as that might be. But sometimes God comes in because he wants to remove the sins and the obstacles you've built for yourself, and that can be inconvenient. Where God is tapping you on the shoulder, whispering, you've got to stop that, you've got to change that, They're not good for you. What are you doing? We talked about this before. Okay, they're not getting it. (laughs) We need to have a visitation. I need to come in in power. I need to show myself to them to try and make a change personally like, like that. And that's not always very much fun. But God's perspective is bigger than ours right now. You know, we go, but Lord, I've kind of got this whole setup and we're kind of in a groove and you want to, you want to disrupt all that? God knows what you really need no matter how painful it might be. So let me ask you, are you receptive to God's presence? Now immediately, we say, oh, of course. Yes, absolutely. All right, good. That is a good reaction for a Christian to have. But sometimes I think we like the idea of God coming into our lives more than the actual reality of what it's like when God shows up to our lives. Leonard Ravenhill very famously said, Revival tarries because we are content to live without it. Lord, I love revival, but you know what? I think things are okay. You know, we're pretty good. I got a nice life. Things are okay. And we don't want to shake things up too much. Of course, I would never say no, but you know, God, if, if, you, if you don't, then I'm not really going to be too worried about it. That's not good. Or we come to saying, God, I want you to remove all the fear out of my life. Okay. Do you want God also to remove all the unforgiveness out of your heart? Well, I, let's just work on the fear thing first. No, 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 they're, they're linked together. I got to get one of these things out to get the other thing out. Lord, I want to do anything you've ever told me. I'll do, I'll do whatever you want. Give me your will. And he says, okay, I want you to go be a missionary in Afghanistan. Oh, Lord. Okay, anything but that. Let me, let me, when I said anything, I didn't really mean anything. Yikes. Guys, things change when God shows up. When God manifests his presence, things change. And we've got to make sure that in our lives and in our churches, we've not boxed God out. We've said, Lord, this is your your zone. Anything you like in this zone is fine. And uh, other than that, please keep your hands to yourself. (laughs) We never say that out loud, but we can do that. Sometimes our churches, where we box God out of the proceedings, where There's no possibility for anything supernatural or miraculous to happen. It's safer that way. You can plan your meetings down to the minute. And listen, I believe in planning. I believe in structure. I believe that the Holy Spirit can move in your preparation just as much as he can move in the execution of the meeting. But in either case, if we're not willing to close the laptop and just sit and listen because God is speaking, we're not going to hear the voice of the Lord. You ever have one of those moments? You're washing dishes, you're mowing the lawn, whatever, and you just... You feel God nudging you. If you're not able to stop and say, what, Lord? Like like Samuel, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. That's a bad thing. If you don't know, or if you're not willing to get out of bed and pray. Ever wake up in the middle of the night and you just can't get back to sleep? Why not get up and pray? Say, Lord, are you trying to speak to me? 
if we're not ever willing to, to stop the service and stop the worship and say, I think, I think God is moving here. I think there's something that we need to do. We're willing to do that. I hope that we're more willing to do that. But if, if, we're, if we're so worried about being inconvenienced by God, if we can't receive it, then we're not going to receive the greatness of God's presence. So be receptive. Give everything to the Lord out of humble hospitality. Think of it that way, being hospitable to the presence of the Lord. This is his house anyway. He bought you with his blood. You're not your own, the Bible says. So when God's got something to say, best sit up and listen. Does that mean it's always going to be sunshine and rainbows? No, sometimes there's got to be a flood first. Sometimes there's got, something's got to die before the rest of it can come back to life, but it's all for our good. And number four, and I will admit with number four, I did stretch the R thing a little far, but it's okay because the first three came easily. But number four, Abraham recruited his family for a visitation from the Lord. He brought his family in. He was not content to go it alone and leave Sarah on the outside. You see in verse 6, he got Sarah to quick make three seahs of flour. A seah was about two gallons of, of dry flour. So this is a lot of food. He's not saying, you know, just, yeah, just enough. You know, I, we, I know we went to the grocery store yesterday, and we're kind of saving that for the thing. Like, no, no, no. Make a, make a feast for these people. Go kill the fatted calf. He involved Sarah in this. She's got preacher cookies going. Do you know what preacher cookies are? Amen. They're delicious. I don't know how you cook them, but I know that they don't take very much, and they call them preacher cookies because if you saw the preacher coming back in the day from a long way off, you could throw the oats in the oven and put the whatever yummy mix that goes into it, and they wouldn't have to, I don't think, cook. They would kind of bake on their own, and then they'd be ready by the time you got from the, the street to the house, and they're really good. So if you ever want to bring me some preacher cookies, knock yourself out. <laughs> Every woman in this room is laughing at my description of that recipe right now. That's fine. That's fine. Sarah's cooking. Now, this is important to know because while Abraham has been at the center, Sarah has very much been an integral part of this story. She came with him when he left Ur. She was in on that lie to Pharaoh. She was the one that suggested Hagar bear Abraham's child. She also was renamed in the last chapter. So God came in this story not just to build Abraham's faith, but maybe even primarily to build Sarah's faith. And as we see, and we're going to see in a second, she seemed to be in short supply of faith. Abraham did not make the mistake that so many men of God have made that seeking the Lord on their own and neglecting their family in the process, giving themselves over to ministry or to study or to prayer and then neglecting their family. That happens. We're going to read later on in 1 Samuel about Eli, the priest, who himself was a godly man, but he had two sons named Hophni and Phinehas that were trained up in the ministry beneath him, and they were stealing from the people. They were taking advantage of the women in the tabernacle, and they made the worship of the Lord a burden to the nation of Israel. Now, Samuel came in, and Eli became his foster father, and the Lord used Samuel in a mighty way, but you know what? Samuel was not a good father either. He had two kids, and when he got old, all the nation of Israel came to him and said, Samuel, we do not want your kids to be our judges. We want a king instead. It's really sad that there are very many men of God who have missed it with their families. How many pastors who have poisoned their kids' love for the ministry? I had a great father who 
and a great mother too, who, who brought me along and showed me that it was a wonderful thing to serve the Lord. But I know many friends who they, they'll go to church, but don't ask them to do anything because I know what it's like to do ministry and I don't want any more of that. How many wives have been burned out because their husbands have addicted themselves to the ministry and left her out of it? Now you yourself, especially if you're a father, you got to take responsibility for your family's spiritual life, not just your own. You all know this verse, Joshua 24, 15. When they were going into the promised land, Joshua said, If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Families have a responsibility to one another. No one gets to fly solo. Now this makes it harder because if it was just me, it would be easy. I don't have to worry about you people. But if you skip it, you'll miss it entirely. If you say, well, I'm just going to serve the Lord and forget my family. Well, that doesn't work because the Lord would never tell you to neglect your family. Husbands, you don't get to say, well, my wife just is never going to get it, so I'm just going to move on and not worry about her anymore. Wrong. Wives, you even have a New Testament mandate to love your husbands into the kingdom. Paul says, if you have an unbelieving husband, stay with them because who knows if your sweetness and your love and him seeing that Jesus makes you a better wife and a more gracious woman will attract him to the gospel. Parents, it's your job to train up your kids in the ways of the Lord. Well, I don't want to force them. Well, you force them to brush their teeth. You force them to get on the bus every morning to go to school. It's astonishing to me that you can have a very, a very legitimately godly man, godly woman, godly kid, godly parent. And when one member of their family does not take God seriously enough, they get angry. I'll tell you a, a silly story that illustrates this. It was a very low stakes situation, but it can be a lot worse. When I got back from summer camp, high school church camp for the first time, amazing experience, worshiping the Lord, studying my Bible, had, had learned things about myself and about God. And then I came home and my parents picked me up and they were all very excited and we were going out to dinner and my parents turned on the radio and we were listening to some music and I had this little hissy fit because you shouldn't be listening to anything other than worship music in the car. And I got this really bad attitude. Oh, you people aren't spiritual enough. And my dad, who of course is a pastor, said, is that what you learn at church camp? You learn to come home and start judging people? There was another time we were, he, he was at the camp this time, and of course, same thing, having a wonderful time with the Lord, and I forget what I did exactly, but I, I directly disobeyed something he had told me to do, and he said the words, haven't you learned anything at this camp? And that's how it can be sometimes. Like, well, I'm just having all this encounter with God, and I come home, and my wife doesn't get it. Oh, I can't stand her. It's like, well, you can see the disjoint there, can't you? If you were really encountering God, it would make you more patient, more kind with your wife or your kids or your parents. But Satan loves to stir up discord in families. So when one person is progressing with the Lord, you know what he'll do? He'll poke and prod the other one to make them really obnoxious. And you feel like, you're messing up my walk with Jesus. I've got religion and you're ruining it. Sometimes you've got to back up and you've got to go slowly with your family. But along the way, God will bless you, and you will grow up. Don't get bitter. Don't get selfish with your family. They're ruining my life. Ooh, those are deadly words, man. Never give up. 
Never give up on your family. We've all heard those stories of the, the husband that stayed with his wife, who was a faithful churchgoer for decades and decades and decades, and then it took him, like in his 80th year, he finally got it. My grandfather on my mom's side was that way. We, we like to joke and, and tease because my poor grandfather, who was no Christian to speak of, and neither was anyone in his family, he had to watch his whole family get religion and become pastors and pastors' wives, and his whole life was turned upside down because both his daughters married pastors and moved across the country, and then his other son went to Bible college, and then his wife becomes a Christian, and now he's got to go to all these church things, and now they don't like him doing the things and talking that way and watching that show, and it was, it was funny because he was such a, a good man and a sweet man, but it's like he had to watch all this happen right in front of him until his late 70s when one day he was at church again, and for whatever reason, that day, it just he got it. He got it, and he gave his life over to Jesus Christ. It was awesome. You don't give up on your family. Well, there's no helping them. There's no helping you either. That's why Jesus had to come and die for you. Take it easy. Now, we're going to see. Sarah was a scoffer at the promise. She was a drain on Abraham's faith. I'm not, I'm not neglecting that. That is true. Family can do that to each other because we know each other so well as family. We know the exact awful thing to say to completely pull the plug on someone's joy and happiness. But Abraham still, as we see here, loved her and still was taking steps to draw her into the service of God and into God's presence. So these four things, Abraham was ready for the Lord, he recognized the Lord, he was receptive to God and his will, and he recruited his wife as well. We have moments in our lives where God steps in and manifests himself. That's the exciting part of being a Christian, is that you never know. We were praying with the worship team before church tonight. Lord, it's just another service. It's another time to come. It's another Wednesday night. But with God, you never know that it's going to be just another Wednesday night. It might be the Wednesday night for somebody. Where God might finish something or start something in somebody's life. And these things here help us. They help us to draw near to the Lord. They help us to make the most of those moments. James 4, verses 7 and 8. Say, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. <laughs> Got a little rabbit trail. It was, it was Halloween recently, and so you see all the ads for horror movies and stuff, and all these movies about doing battle with demons and fighting against the devil. And the Bible says, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you, because he's a bully and a coward, and he can't stand against the Most High God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's a promise. Wow. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God works individually with his people and we live with the constant possibility of God breaking in to our daily lives. He might want to encourage you. He might want to rebuke you. He might want to strengthen you. He might need to break you down. But whatever it is, you need it and you've got to be ready for it. And Abraham set us an excellent example to follow. So, do what you got to do to be ready. And then when the time comes, be like Bartimaeus and don't let anybody keep you from coming to Jesus. So let's read now verses 9 through 15. And this is going to be much faster than the beginning. So verse 9, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. I think that's funny. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, 
Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. This is, as I said at the beginning, the last assurance of the promise of a son until Genesis chapter 21, when Isaac will be born. And this time, the target seems to be primarily Sarah. Abraham got it at this point. Sarah was still a doubter. And so the Lord asks where she is, and of course the Lord knows where she is, and he knows she can hear. And he speaks for her benefit while she's eavesdropping at the tent. Again, that, that makes me laugh that Abraham's out there having lunch with some strangers, and she's got her ear up against the tent listening to what they're saying. And he confirms what he had said back in 1721, which is, about this time next year, I will return, and she will have a child. Now here you, you get a glimpse at how Sarah probably felt about this whole promise nonsense. She'd probably had it up to here with Abraham, talking about how one day they're going to have a child. Abraham was 99 years old. And it says the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. That is, she had been through menopause. It was over as far as she was concerned. So in verse 12, she laughs, and probably in her heart, because she said, I didn't laugh. Because she's like, what? I didn't laugh? And the Lord's like, yeah, I, I heard that laugh, because I hear the things you say even in your own heart. And she gives a very carnal response to God's promise. She says, after my Lord is old and I'm worn out, shall I have pleasure? Now, that word for pleasure is, in fact, a reference to sexual pleasure, which is indicating to us that it not only has she had her change of life, but they probably had not been intimate for a very long time. She said, come on, we're old. She's laughing for the same reason you're laughing in your heart right now, thinking about an 89 and a 99-year-old people. They weren't even trying for a child anymore. Psalm 1, verse 1 says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You know what a scoff is? Oh, 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 the very idea. That's a scoff, all right? I know y'all don't talk much like that, but anyway. Sarah was a scoffer here. You can picture her. Like she, maybe she's you know, in your house. You've got something going on in the living room, and she's washing the dishes, but kind of listening in. Next year, Sarah's going to have a baby. She goes, ha! That's the kind of laugh we have here. She's not like, oh, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. She goes, fat chance. That's not going to happen. Can you even imagine? She was a scoffer, like Job's wife was a scoffer later on, when she said, what, you're serving this God that ripped all this stuff away from you? Curse God and, and take your own life. And he said, you're talking like a foolish woman right now. Remember David's wife, Michael, the woman that he had fallen in love with, Saul's daughter. She thought he was hot stuff when he was the, the one slaying tens of thousands. And then one day they bring in the Ark of the Covenant to the city of Jerusalem. And David was leaping and dancing before the Lord and says that Michael saw him doing that and despised him in her heart. And he gets into the house and they were going around and providing a blessing, like uh, some cakes and things like that, so that everybody in the town could celebrate. And he comes to his house, and she goes, well, 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 how the king of Israel has debased himself before the maidens of the land today. Because David was dancing in a linen ephod, which is, a lot of people will take that to say that he was naked, and it's not naked how we think of it, but he wasn't wearing the royal robes, he wasn't dignified, he wasn't even wearing anything that you would call decent, and he was dancing and celebrating, he's like, oh, all the ladies really like that, David, great job, pal, 
And then David said, it was before the Lord, Michael. And it says, the Lord struck Michael with barrenness from that time on because she despised his worship. It's called being a scoffer. Ladies, you can either boost or drain your husband's faith by your attitude. I mean, you can even see, although she's scoffing here, 1 Peter 3, verse 6 reminds us that Sarah called her husband Lord. And this is that verse where you see that. Not Lord, obviously, as a reference to God, but Lord as in Sir or Master or, you know, the old-fashioned way the wives would call their husbands Mr. Jones and he'd call her Mrs. Jones or whatever. And it's, it's a respectful term. Although she's not doing a respectful thing, she's using respectful words, which is good. But you can imagine for years now, she's probably sick of hearing about this. Abraham, it's not going to happen. We have Ishmael, that's it. And he had to keep that faith on his own. She was the practical one. You know, most marriages have a practical one when it comes to the things of the Lord. One of them is the, is the dreamer. It's like, God can do anything. Okay, well, slow down. Let's see. But God confronts her on this. And he says those immortal words, is anything too hard for the Lord? We're talking about the God who created the world and flooded the earth and put the flood away. And you're going to say he can't cause a woman to have a child? He reaffirms the promise. And she says, no, I didn't laugh, but God's not going to let her get away that easy. Yeah, you did. Maybe you're like that. I'm not doubting. You know what's going on. Anybody ever have a word from the Lord for you? Say, hey, God told me to say something to you. And it's exactly what you need to hear, but you're not about to admit it to them. Which is why you should never be afraid to share things like that. Every time I say it, nobody ever receives it. Well, it could be like this. The Lord said you're going to have a child and you shouldn't laugh at that. I didn't laugh. Okay, well, I'm sorry. It's just, uh, I don't know. Sorry. But she walks away going, I did laugh. I did laugh. I remember Abraham had laughed too back in chapter 17. So it's Sarah's turn to learn here. And their son is going to be named Isaac, which means laughter. Jeremiah 32, 17. Oh, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 26, with God, all things are possible. Are you really believing that right now? Do you really believe not only that God is all powerful, but that he's willing to work for you on your behalf? We can become scoffers at the work of God, can't we? We'll vigorously defend the theology. Somebody goes on TV and says, now God can't do anything. You get mad and you tweet and you write letters and you talk to your friends, but you come to church and you want to pray, but you want to be careful because God probably doesn't want to do anything for me. Mm-mm-mm. Well, you know what? I have to believe that God wants something else because it's impossible. She's like, how am I going to have a child I can't have children anymore. I was never able to have children, and now it's not even physically, biologically possible for me to have children now. God does that sometimes. He leads us to a place where there is no other option than a miracle. There's no other recourse. And you say that the moment is past. Well, that must be done because God didn't answer. You've got to be able to look not just at your circumstances, but recognize when God's presence is there. God loves to wait until you've got nothing left before he asks you for something. Remember the widow in 1 Kings 17? During the famine, Elijah goes up to her and he asks if she's got any food for him. And she said, look, I'm picking up these sticks because I'm going to go home. I've got a little bit of oil left. I'm going to make one last little loaf of bread for me and my son. We're going to eat it and then that's it. And Elijah shows up and says, okay, give some to me first. That's what God does to us sometimes. 
The Lord lets you come to the end of yourself. And when you've got nothing left, that's when God says, I want the last one. Lord, but then I won't have anything else. And God goes, yeah, I know, but you'll have me. Isn't that enough? Remember when Jairus came to Jesus, the ruler of the synagogue, and he said, Lord, my daughter is dying. You've got to come right now. It's critical. And they come, and the other woman touches the hem of Jesus' garment, and he stops and ministers to this woman. But then the servants run up, and they say to Jairus, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. And Jesus goes, if you believe, man, anything is possible. And he shows up and raises her up. The Lord wants to grow you and complete your sanctification. He wants to turn you into the person that he sees that Christ can become through you. Sarah was a scoffer, but through this event, she is going to learn to trust the Lord and that she's going to go on to see the fulfillment of this promise. And she's going to become the mother of faith. Hebrews 11.11 says that by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised you see that? She believed. Why? Because she thought, well, it's still, there's some physical possibility. No, because she considered that God was faithful. When the presence of God comes, he wants to change us into his image and destroy our doubts. A while ago, that, that phrase breakthrough was really popular. And I kind of like that because sometimes we feel like we're just pushing up against the wall and the Lord wants to come and just break it down. And something you've been struggling with for years, maybe, the Lord finally brings it to a close in one moment. Like here with Sarah, all those doubts and resentments and that bitterness that had built up, that scoffer's attitude that she had, the Lord is able to break that in one day. That's why we've got to recognize when the presence of God comes, because nothing is impossible for him. Nothing hinders God from working in your life, whether internally or externally, and you've got to trust that. So are you able to recognize the visitation of God? And are you ready to respond when those moments come? Have you been prepping yourself ahead of time? And when it comes, will you know just what to do and how to be? For all I know, that you could be having one of those moments tonight. You could be on the edge of giving up your doubts or your bitterness or your sin. You might say, well, no, I'm not really having any kind of spectacular moment tonight. But you know what you're doing? You are engaging in that faithful discipline, those in-between times that will prepare you for the next time God wants to come and visit you. Faithful discipline, seeking after God and His Word. And if nothing else from tonight, you can draw from this to be hospitable <laughs> and to be full of faith. Because the world is more wonderful than we know. The world is a pretty great place, all things considered. There's a lot of wonderful things here. But there's something beyond what you see that is always going on. And if you are in Christ Jesus, you are living with the possibility that any day, any time, anything that is going on, God can break in and do something miraculous. And the next time you meet a stranger... As it says in Hebrews, you could be entertaining angels unawares. And that's a pretty exciting possibility, isn't it?